Long ago and far away, the Apostle Paul and a few friends traveled from place to place for months at a time. Everywhere they went, they preached about Jesus, attracted attention, drew crowds, and eventually got kicked out of town. But they also left behind, in place after place, a new community of believers. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. In Acts 17, Paul and his companions come to the city of Thessalonica, stay there a while, then move on to Berea. It's becoming clear that Paul is focusing his attention on cities. Let's listen to Dr. Boyce as he describes what happens. The 17th chapter of Acts is best known for the great sermon that the Apostle Paul preached in Athens on Mars Hill. That's only the second half of the chapter, and in the first half of this great chapter of this important book, we find Paul not in Athens, but in two other Greek cities, in Thessalonica in the north, and in Berea, which was on the way south from Thessalonica and Philippi toward Athens and Corinth. It's an interesting place to stop, if only for a few minutes, and reflect on the importance of cities in the Bible. Cities are important in the Bible as a whole. Some who have studied this have pointed out that there are are more than 1,400 references to cities, significant references to cities, and that there are more than 25 careful studies of mission to a particular city, in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Acts, of course, is a great example of this. Acts begins in a city, in Jerusalem, that most important city in all of Jewish history, and it progresses through scores of cities until toward the end of the book we find the Apostle Paul and those who are with him in Rome. So you move from the most important city of Judaism to the most important city of the world of that day. We're in the midst of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his companions, and we remember that they were commissioned by a church in a city, the Church of Antioch. It was the first mission-minded church in the New Testament era. It was a cosmopolitan church because it was a cosmopolitan city. And it was out of the particular sensitivity that the Christians in this city in Syria had that the missionary enterprise as we know it went forth. From this point on, we're going to find Paul in Athens, as I indicated, the great intellectual center of the world. He's going to pass on to Corinth, a great commercial center, and then we're going to find him in Ephesus, where one of his most significant works was done. Paul's strategy, as we study his activity in these journeys, seems to have been this. Number one, to go into a city, and then number two, after he had gone into a city, to make it his endeavor to plant churches there. It isn't, of course, that Paul was unconcerned for other areas. He obviously was. But he knew that if he planted a strong Christian presence in the city, as everything goes and comes from the city, well, the gospel, like everything else, would eventually spread from that great center to the regions 
roundabout. Now, as I say, we have two examples of that in this first half of the chapter, and it's those we want to look at in this study. The first city is Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a very important city. It was a port city. It wasn't as great a city as Corinth. Corinth was in a more direct line of commerce. It sat astride the isthmus and was a place where produce was passed up one side of the narrow straits and down the other in order to save many miles of sailing around the Peloponnese. Thessalonica was not like that, but nevertheless, it was a chief city of Macedonia, and much of the produce from Macedonia going away, and many of the things being imported to Macedonia passed through the city of Thessalonica. It's there today. It has a slightly different name. It's known as Slonica, but it is still an important city, and it was an even more important city in Paul's day. Now, let's think just for a moment what Paul did, what his strategy was in this city. The first thing we notice, which we have noticed in other cities as well, is that he established a point of contact with the citizens. Paul's chief point of contact as he went about these cities was the synagogue, because there he had a hearing. There was a place where godly Jews and God-fearing Gentiles would gather regularly to give attention to the Jewish scriptures. So that was a great advantage to Paul. When he went to a synagogue, he found people that were already interested in religious things, and he found those who, to some extent, were already familiar with the Word of God. They didn't know about Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Scriptures, but on the basis of their prior knowledge, he had a great opportunity to announce Christ to them. I would suggest that in our effort to reach our world today, we should focus on the cities. Of course, that's where the majority of the people are, and more and more people are moving to the cities all the time, and that when we move into the cities to establish a Christian witness, we look for points of contact. Someone will say to me, well... Is that a synagogue? No, not necessarily a synagogue. As a matter of fact, in most places, that is not today the most effective point of contact. But our goal should be to establish those points of contact. We've tried to do that a bit here in Philadelphia, and if a person would quiz me on this, I think I would say, and in my judgment, the greatest point of contact for the preaching or teaching of the gospel today is in areas of city life where Christians can be of service to other people. People in the cities are very conscious of their needs. Some are single people, and they have children, and they have to work, and they wonder what they're going to do with their children. When they get older, they go to school. What do they do when they're younger? Well, a great point of contact with such people is a preschool, and we established one here many years ago. I suppose over the years we have had more helpful contacts with city people in that way than perhaps anything else we have done. In more recent years, we've established a high school, and for the same reason, not necessarily because we think we know how to do it better than anybody else, but because there's a tremendous need. The very point at which in the development of education, the the secular system, the public schools, seem most to break down is the point where there's the greatest witness and opportunity. There is a weakness because so many Christian schools tend to stop when they get to the high school level. Let's say here's, a, here's an opportunity to serve and establish a point of contact. The same thing is true in the service ministries, ministries to street people. Our ministry is known as ACTS, ministry to homosexuals. Our ministry is known 
as Harvest, ministry to those who are having problem or crisis pregnancies. Our ministry is known as Alpha and so on. I don't think that we have done a comprehensive job yet. As a matter of fact, I would say that here in Philadelphia, we have perhaps only begun to scratch the surface of the many things that can be done. But nevertheless, that's a place to begin, and it's out of those contacts that the most likely prospects arise for actually sharing the gospel with those who are in need and who perhaps by the grace of God are aware of the need they have. Another thing we've stressed here over the years is the challenge to Christians to live in the cities and establish a Christian presence there. This is not to say that Christians are not to establish a presence elsewhere or to go into all the world with the gospel. But if the people are in the cities and we're to establish contacts with the people, then obviously the majority of us should find the cities to be a place where we should live. My pattern there, as I've explored this in other areas, is that of E.V. Hill in Los Angeles, who made it his goal when he went there to pastor Zion Baptist Church some years ago to establish a Christian presence in every block of the city. He had been a ward leader for the Democratic Party in a city in Texas before he went to Los Angeles, and his job as a ward leader for the Democratic Party was to have a block captain in every block of his ward. So when Election Day came, he could work to get out the vote. When he went to Los Angeles, he said to himself, if I could do that for the Democrats, I can certainly do that for God. And so he tried to establish a Christian block captain in every block. That sounds like an overwhelming task, especially if one thinks about it while one is flying into Los Angeles, especially at night, and sees all those many millions of street lights, all those many millions of people that one looks down upon, you wonder to yourself, how many blocks are there in Los Angeles, Johnny Carson? And Johnny Carson would reply, if he knew the answer to that question, 8,000 blocks. Now, that's not all that impossible. So E.V. Hill started out to do that. The last I heard, that was many, many years ago, he had block captains in 1,900 blocks of Los Angeles. I think we need to do that and find other ways of doing it as Christian people. Now, the second thing I notice about Paul's procedure when he arrived in Thessalonica is that having gone into the synagogue, he began to reason with those who were there, from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, just think about those things for a moment. I want you to think about what it says, and then I want you to think about what it doesn't say. First of all, it says he began with the Scriptures. Scriptures are the Word of God. He refers to them elsewhere as the very oracles of God. That is, God's own words. God has promised to bless his Scripture, He said that he won't allow it to return unto him void. So Paul, I guess, for theological and practical reasons, began with a word, knowing theologically that God would bless it and judging that if that's what God had promised to bless, well, then he'd probably do better preaching the Scriptures than doing anything else. And so he began to teach them. The Jews, those who were in the synagogues to whom he ministered, presumably already having them, at least having some of them, scrolls, had in their hands that which he could use as he began to reason from those scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ. The second thing he did was reason from the scriptures. That's something that the evangelical church needs to hear today because we have a tendency in our time to downplay reason. 
We say, and sometimes we do it on theological grounds. Well, if the Holy Spirit is the one that has to bring men and women to faith in Jesus Christ, then it doesn't really matter whether you give them reasons for their faith or not. The only thing you really have to do is proclaim the Scriptures. That is, just quote Bible verses to them. Well, it's better to quote Bible verses to them than do nothing at all. And it's better to quote Bible verses to them than to quote the mere wisdom of men, however valuable it may be. But I do notice that that is not all that Paul did. He gave the Scriptures, but he reasoned from the Scriptures. He said, think about this. Think about what it says. Think about what it implies. Think how the Scriptures relate to one another. And then as we read what Luke has to say about it, we find that on that basis he explained, and as he opened them up and taught what they meant, and proved, that is, taking text from them, relating them to the experiences of the life of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, and that he had to suffer, die, and then rise again from the dead. So those are the positive things. Now think negatively for a minute. What didn't he do? Well, one thing he didn't do is try to coerce them in some manner. He didn't hit them over the head with the Bible, figuratively speaking. Sometimes we do that. We think that as Christians, all we have to do is shout louder. The world doesn't want to hear us, so we shout. The world doesn't want to think, so we quote Bible verses ad nauseum. And we try to compel people, sometimes even by threats, to be Christians. Paul didn't do that. He reasoned with them. I suppose he reasoned with them winsomely. He tried to win them to his side. He gave every valid, every careful, every thoughtful reason he could, and with the reasons he provided inducements. The Lord Jesus Christ himself did that during the days of his earthly ministry. So he didn't coerce them. And then I want you to see, too, he didn't entertain them. We really do need to hear that today because we live in an entertainment age, and Christianity, in its evangelical form particularly, is caught up in entertainment. You know, one way we talk about the type of thing that is going on today is by this word, ministry. We talk about people's ministries. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood at this point because ministry is a biblical word and an important one. And when we understand it properly, it's something we need to understand. The Bible teaches not that there are lay people and ministers, but rather the Bible teaches that all Christians are ministers. And then he has called some to be teachers and some to serve in other ways. But ministry means to serve, and all Christians are to serve, and therefore all of us are to minister. Well, that's a good word, but we don't use it that way. When we th- use the word, we speak of a ministry, and what we mean by that is a business, generally, that's wrapped up around an individual. I've noticed in the media in recent months that there's great talk about the television ministries and whether some of the people who are no longer in television ministry are going to establish another ministry. What that really means is a business. They're going to get into something that's going to bring in money and, as we well know, often thrive, not because of the substance of its teaching, but because of its entertainment value. Now, Paul did not go to Thessalonica to entertain the citizens of Thessalonica. He did not go to Berea to entertain the Bereans. Paul went there to teach the Word of God. He took the Scriptures, he reasoned from them, explaining what they meant and proving from the Word itself that Jesus is the Christ. Let me say, 
that if you decide to entertain, whether you do that on a large scale with millions and millions of dollars or on a small scale, you'll get a certain following because people like to be entertained. But the result of it will not be the result that we find from Paul's work in Thessalonica, that is, a church, a communion of Christian people called into being by God and blessed by him, but you'll have a business, you'll have a ministry wrapped up around you, which, when you are gone, will fade away. Why is it that Bible-teaching churches thrive from generation to generation, and ministries, in our use of the word, do not? It's because the ministries center on an individual, and entertainment, churches, and they're the kind of churches they should be centered on the exposition of the word and Jesus Christ, who is the message. That's the next thing we need to see from that. We've seen Paul's strategy in establishing a point of contact. We've seen his teaching method, namely to teach from Scripture, proving and explaining in a reasonable way what it says. Next, we notice that his message is centered in the Christ. Now, there are lots of other things he could have talked about, and I'm sure that as he explained who Christ was, what he came to do, and the implications of that, he touched on many of these things. It is important, however, that when Luke writes in as condensed form as he does, he doesn't mention these other matters, important as they may have been, but he mentions Jesus. All came to teach Christ. He had to suffer. had to rise again from the dead, and he proclaimed that Jesus, that is Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus, is that Christ. You see, what we really have here in this passage, it gets shorter and shorter as we go on, as a restatement of what I spoke of in an earlier study is the kerygma. The word kerygma is Greek, and it means the proclamation. It was a certain proclamation. It was associated with what we mean when we use the word gospel, namely the good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news concerns a certain proclamation. Certain things have happened. Certain things are true. And that is focused in Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God. That he died according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen alive by chosen witnesses and is now proclaimed throughout the world as the Savior from sin, and the Messiah. As I say, there are many other things you can add to that, but that's the core of it. That's the focus. And any teaching that leaves that out, of course, has left out the very thing that God blesses, the heart, the very thing that results in the salvation of sinful men and women. I've spoken now of Paul's method, his point of contact. I've spoken of his teaching. I've spoken of the content of his message. I want you to see, finally, the result the result which I alluded to a moment ago is that he established a church in this city. Verse 4 says, some of the Jews were persuaded, that is, some of those who were in the synagogue, and they joined Paul and Silas, and so did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. In the next paragraph, we're going to find that one of them was Jason, was another man named Antipater, and perhaps there were others as well, mentioned even in the New Testament. But it says here, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Women had enjoyed a larger measure of liberation in the Greek city-states than they did in the villages of Palestine or Canaan, and here they were prominent and many of them believed. I said the result was that a church was established, and that's true. 
We're going to see that it was not only established, but it endured. We need to see that something else was true as well. Not only was the church established, the second thing is that persecution followed. Here we find that those who did not believe were jealous, verse 5, and that out of their jealousy they were moved to round up certain bad characters, kind that you find hanging around on street corners, even here as well as there, and that they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They went to Jason's house because that's where Paul and Silas were staying. They didn't find them there, but they did find Jason, and so they dragged him and some other brothers to the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. And then they made their accusation. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Let me give you a little parenthesis before I say something that is really more important. In our translation, those to whom they brought Jason are called the city officials. Sometimes we lose something by translations, and I think that's true here. The words city officials are a good translation of the Greek word, which is politarchs. But the reason I say we lose something is that that title is an official title, a politarch. It actually means a city official. But it's an official title, and it's important for this reason. This is the only place in ancient literature where this word is found. And there was a long time when scholars, liberal scholars, critics of Luke's writings were saying that it's proof that Luke didn't know what he was writing about as an historian. Look, they said, we don't know anything about any politarchs in the Greek city-states. And here Luke is using the term. It's obviously something that he's coined because he wasn't there to report the situation accurately. Well, as a matter of fact, it is the critics rather than Luke, who has been proved wrong, because they have now found, not scattered throughout the Roman world, but in this very city of Thessalonica, 16 inscriptions in stone on this very word, Politarch. It would seem, since the inscriptions are not found elsewhere, and the word is not found elsewhere, that this was a term unique to Thessalonica. They've even found the term carved in an arch above one of the gates to the city. So far from being an accuracy on Luke's part, it's actually a proof of extraordinary accuracy because he didn't use this word when he reported the work that was going on in Philippi or Iconium or Derby or Lystra or any of the other places where there weren't politarchs, but rather to use the word here, which is entirely right. I said I was going to say something about this that was a bit more important, and let me do that now. We're told that when they came to these city officials, they made their accusation, it was twofold, that these who have been upsetting people elsewhere have come here, and that they are teaching that people should defy Caesar's decrees. I want to point out that the second half of that was untrue. It was politic, of course. They wanted to rouse those who regarded themselves as good citizens of the Roman Empire, if they could get them stirred up by thinking that people were coming here teaching insurrection against Caesar, they had something in their favor. It's exactly the same tactic that was taken in the trial of Jesus Christ. They knew that Pilate wouldn't condemn him because he claimed to be God, which of course is why they wanted to have him executed. So they said, well, he sets himself up against Caesar, making out that he's a king. Well, that's what they're saying here. These men are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Jesus is a king, of course, 
But he said, even at his trial, that his kingdom was a kingdom of truth. Pilate understood that. So that wasn't the substance of the accusation. And it was false. But the first part of it was true. I do think this is another place where we've lost something in the translation. The translation that I have says, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Well, that's the gist of it. They were certainly causing trouble. But the text actually says, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. The old King James Bible translated it that way. There's an inscription from antiquity of a teenager writing to one parent complaining about another parent, and the gist of it was that his father wouldn't let him go to Alexandria, and he says, this has upset me. And that's the word that's used here. These are the men who have upset the world. They've turned it upside down. Now, I say that's true because that's exactly what they were doing. They were upsetting the world. They were turning it upside down. But it wasn't a bad thing for them to do. It was a good thing for the simple reason that the world had already been turned upside down by sin. And by turning it upside down again, they were really setting it back the way it should go. They were setting it right side up again because they were pointing men and women to Jesus Christ. I wish that all Christians everywhere would be upsetting in just that way. I know a lot of Christians that are upsetting, but not in that way. And I find myself sometimes upset by them, but that's not what I have in mind. We should be upsetting the world in the sense that we bring, by the grace of God and the preaching of the Word, the world back to its senses, teaching them what it is that God has done in Jesus Christ for their salvation. The question I would ask is that if this is what God wants us to do, and if God has placed us in a city where it needs to be done, then, brothers and sisters, why aren't we doing it? It's our task and it's our challenge. If we had a great deal more time, I would like to look at this point at the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, because in those first two chapters of that important book, Paul, from a later period of history, looks back on this church and begins to reflect on what happened there as the result of his preaching. We're going to find, as we go on from this point in Acts, that we begin to deal with cities to whom he later wrote letters. We're going to come to Corinth. He wrote two letters to Corinth. We're going to come to Ephesus. He wrote an important letter to Ephesus. We've already been in Philippi. He wrote a letter to the Philippians. These two letters to the Thessalonians are most important, and the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians throw a great deal of light on what happened here in these days. Instead of reading them, I wish we had time to read them, but instead of reading them, let me just tell you the points that they make. Paul says in the first chapter of that letter that the gospel came in power when he preached it in the city, that is, by the Holy Spirit. The way Paul writes makes me think that there were times in his ministry when, at least so far as he could tell, the gospel didn't come in such power. He preached it, it was the same gospel, but for reasons known only to God, not as many responded, and the results were not as firm. Here, however, in Thessalonica, God powerfully blessed the Scriptures as they were preached. Secondly, he says that in conjunction with that, when he preached the gospel, the words he spoke were received by the Thessalonians as the very words of God. He often refers to his teaching that way, not to say, of course, that in a human way everything he said was from God, but rather to say that when he was preaching the gospel as an apostle, one whom God had called to this special task, the actual words he spoke were God's words. He said in writing to the Corinthians that we speak not in human words, but in words given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's the way it was received 
And because it was received that way, God richly blessed it. The third thing Paul says in those first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians is that those who received the gospel in this way and believed it became imitators of him, that is Paul and Silas and the others who were present. There wasn't any New Testament in those days. They didn't have even the Sermon on the Mount. So they could place the words of Jesus Christ before them and say, this is our model. They had Paul, Paul living after Jesus Christ, and they tried to model their Christian life on him. The fourth thing he says is that in doing that, they became models. That is, not only models to one another, but models to all those roundabout, as those who are actually living out the Christian life in a city and doing it in a powerful and effective way. And then finally, he says in those chapters, as a result of all those things, they became a center through which the gospel spread. That is to say, in their turn, they became missionaries. I think that's what we need today. We need churches established in our cities, taught in the Scriptures, receiving those Scriptures as the very words of God, in which individuals are imitating now, not Paul necessarily, but Jesus Christ, so becoming models of what a church should be and from whom the gospel spreads to all the regions round about. Well, the story goes on to tell us that although they hadn't arrested Paul and Silas and had only secured Jason, they did extract from Jason a pledge that there would be no more trouble. It doesn't spell out exactly what that involved, but probably it meant that the missionaries, at least Paul, would leave the city. And so he did. We find in the next section that as soon as it was night, the brothers, that is the Christians, sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And so we come to the second of these two cities. A number of interesting things happened in Berea. I think that of all the phrases from this great book of Acts that I remember from the teaching I had in Acts in my childhood, this one about the Bereans is probably that which has stuck with me most over the years. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, translated in a slightly different way in our versions, but that's the way I learned it, because they received the message with great eagerness and searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Two things that are said of them there, three things actually. First, they received the message eagerly. Secondly, they searched the Scriptures. And then thirdly, they searched the Scriptures daily. When it says that they received the word or message eagerly, it doesn't mean that they were naive, simply believed everything they heard. That isn't the implication of the message at all. It simply means that unlike those in some of the other cities, they were open to it and had not prejudged the issue in advance. You see, in the other cities, they tended in some instances to regard the preaching of the gospel as something new and therefore as something to be rejected out of hand. The Bereans didn't do that. They said, this is good. We'd like to hear it. You've come to announce good news. Let's hear the good news. But then we're told, having heard the good news, they went to the scriptures themselves and searched the scriptures, examining them to see if these things that the Apostle Paul was teaching really were substantiated by the Word of God. And moreover, they did it daily, daily, not just on Sunday mornings for an hour, but daily. 
because these things were matters of life and death, and they wanted to spend all available time in studying them. Oh, for a church like that! Oh, how happy the preacher who has a congregation composed of such people. There are preachers, I suppose, who want people to accept what they say just because they say it. They don't want to be challenged. But those who are really happy are those who have a congregation who hear the Word, receive it eagerly, and then go to the Scriptures themselves and study it to see if these things are really true. And, as it says, do it daily. What were the results? You find the results in verse 12. It's exactly the same things we saw earlier. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And what that means, I'm sure you understand it, is that here in Berea, as in Thessalonica, and in Philippi before that, and in the other cities, a church was established which went on to grow and thrive and in turn send out missionaries to other places. When we finished our last study, which was about Paul's work in Philippi, I pointed out that although Luke doesn't say it in so many words, he stayed behind in Philippi. We see it by the fact that he changes from using the word we when they traveled to the word they. It was we when they came to Philippi, but it was they afterwards, so we know that he stayed on. Here at the end of these two stories, the stories of the work in Thessalonica and Berea, we find that Paul's company is reduced still further because Silas and Timothy stayed on at Berea, and Paul went alone to this great southern city of Athens. We know the reasons, of course, the early churches needed someone to strengthen them. And that's why Paul allowed them to stay. But if we look at it, we would say, you know, from a human point of view, that what he really was doing was dividing what was already a pitifully small force. Paul was setting out, we have to understand this, to upset the world. Not just Thessalonica, not just Berea, not just Philippi, but to upset the entire Roman world. And he was setting out to do it with just four workers, himself and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who had joined them along the way. And what does he do? He leaves Luke and Philippi, and he leaves Silas and Timothy in Berea. He goes on to Athens. Later, they come and join him there. We find it in chapter 18, but after that, he dispatches them again, and Timothy goes back to Thessalonica and Silas somewhere else. We don't know where. What a pitiful, inadequate, tiny force. And yet, what a revolution because of the preaching of the gospel which God was making known through these four men in this area of the world. The world really was, in some quarters at least, set back upon its feet again. Churches were established, and everywhere, men and women, Jews and Greeks, young and old, free and slaves, called upon Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Father, bless the study of Paul's work in these two cities to our hearts and grant that we might learn from it. Above all, 
give us the determination, strength, and grace to do in our own way what he did there, namely establish a Christian presence where it counts, where there are people, and to model what it means to be a Christian so that those who look on might see Jesus and seeing him might be drawn to him and find salvation. Where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C, 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.